This is written by Catherine. Ooh, excuse me. Ooh, excuse me. Ooh, excuse me. Ooh, excuse me. All you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 216 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the Bayon Temple episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that the Bayon Temple in Cambodia has gigantic smiling faces like fucking everywhere. It has literally exactly 216 gigantic smiling faces and with that a little bit of temple knowledge cambodian temple knowledge i of course am matt and coming to us all the way from sunny california would be our resident sony employee tim and it is again sunny california the rain has ceased which is kind of nice we can see the sky the big blue sky and the beaming sun it's we're finally the temperature is now going to be in the 60s again not in the 40s it's pretty nice yeah did you get to see the mountains today uh yeah actually uh from our apartment if you look outside the windows, or even if you just walk out from the door into our little landing, we can see the mountains right over there. So it's actually pretty nice. Yeah, and for those of you wondering, no, we're not making a joke. Believe it or not, um, you are supposed to be able to see the Sierra Nevadas from L.A. Uh, most of the time, but there's a lot of um, just low visibility heading that direction. So, yeah, you can actually see it's pretty cool. If you ever get a chance, you should try it. Are you talking about all the smug? All the smug that's... The smug? Yeah. Populating the the airwaves. Not the airwaves, but the air. Sure. Yes, indeed a Rooney. So how was your week, sir? My week is good. It's actually pretty sad uh, because I don't know if you experienced this or not. Your week was good? Um, Well, I mean, it was interesting. opposite day? Well, I I don't know if you experienced this or not, but whenever it's rainy outside or the weather is like too hot or just, you know, the, the type of weather where you don't feel like going out and dealing with it and you decide, well, you know, I'm kind of stuck in home. I I really don't want to watch a good movie right now because I can watch a good movie any day. Why don't I watch some schlock? Do you ever feel that way sometimes? Sure, sure. It's the rainy, except for me, it's music. Whenever it's like kind of cloudy outside um, and, and, and you've got the... And you've got just kind of that drizzle. It's dreary. It's cooler than it should be. Um, I, I, for me, that is Jim Croce time. It's time to just move in into the room uh, or just drive in the car in an aimless direction and turn on the Jim Croce. <laughs> Every, any direction but Pasadena direction, I'm sure, for you. Correct, correct. Not not the Pasadena way, no. Not the Pasadena way. Well, 
the schlock movie or series of movies I decided to watch were the original Planet of the Apes movies, bypassing the better of the series, which is number one, obviously, but starting with number two, which is beneath the Planet of the Apes. And I got as far as to the first half of Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, and I had to call it quits. Like, I literally had to tap out, turn the TV off, put down the remote, and go outside and brave the, the rain to, uh, to, to clear my head from the schlock that I, that I witnessed, the cultural schlock that I witnessed. I don't know if you're familiar with the original Planet of the Apes movies after part one or not. Are you? Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. And some kind of... I, I, well, no, I am familiar with them. I am familiar with them in the terms of I know that they exist and I've seen you know, footage from them at various points in my life, but I have never sat down and watched the series, um, mainly because I heard that they were pretty much terrible. Well, you should watch the first three, because the first one is the Planet of the Apes movie. It's really good. It's obviously the Charlton Heston oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, one. Yeah, Charlton Heston, yeah, I've seen that one, sure. Everybody's seen that one. Part two, beneath the Planet of the Apes, somehow another astronaut gets on the Planet of the Apes, and it turned out that Charlton Heston did not want to reprise his role, uh, but due to a contract obligation, he agreed to play his role as Captain Taylor at the beginning of the movie, and then at the end of the movie, he makes an appearance. So the entire movie, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, is basically about another Charlton Heston lookalike type who is trying to find Charlton Heston, and he's experiencing and like realizing the same exact things that Charlton Heston's character realized <laughs> and experienced in the very first movie, which is annoying. And it's not as as entertaining. It's it's definitely more hokey than uh, than it is charming or uh, or or impressive even. But then you have the third movie because at the end of the second movie, spoiler alert: the entire Planet of the Apes. Another spoiler alert is Earth in the future blows up because Charlton Heston's character inadvertently detonates a nuclear bomb that blows up everybody. Nice. Yeah, it turns out that Roddy McDowell's monkey character, Cornelius, and I think her name is Kim Hall, the actress, Zora, I think. It's the, you know, she's the one that famously kissed Charlton Heston in the first movie, you know, so it was like the first interspecies kiss, I guess, on screen, interprimate kiss on screen. <laughs> interspecies. Oh, so this was where Howard the Duck got its uh, idea from, it right? This did, was the inspiration. <laughs> but no nipples, no duck nipples. Mmm, mm, yeah. That's... Uh, there's a lot of Charlton Heston nipples, but no monkey nipples. But uh, it turns out <laughs> at the beginning of Conquest, uh, or wait, Escape for the Planet of the Apes, is it for the Planet of the Apes or from? Probably from the Planet of the Apes. Uh, you find out that Cornelius, Roddy McDowell's character, and Kim Hall's character, Zora's, the, the female ape, were on a spaceship. And suddenly that blast knocked them 2,000 years into the past to present day 1971, I think. LA in 1971. And of course they land, they become like the they, they become famous. Like the government is weary about them because they're eight people who can talk, but yet the public idolize them because they are 
Uh, they're, they're like celebrity, you know, like there's somebody cool and different <laughs> do, and they're very personable, I guess. Do they do they do the monkeys? <laughs> you know, you say that, but it's very close. I, there's like a montage where they're going to the oh Brown God, Derby really? when they're going when they're getting uh, fitted for their 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 early 70s clothing. Uh, very retro clothing and like doing things like that, like speaking at the Los Angeles Women's Center about uh, pre- about uh, work and pregnancy and all that stuff. So it's a lot of goofy things like that. Come. So <laughs> it, that movie is very interesting. And walking down the street, exactly. <laughs> but they all die at the end of it. All the monkeys that she's pregnant wow. at the end. Uh, her and her her newborn baby gets gunned down by Mr. Government Man at the end of the movie. Her husband quickly guns down the government man, who in turn guns down Cornelius as he's dying. Cornelius falls off the top of this boat, and as he's lying there dead, his wife Zora, or whatever, before she crawls over to him to die in his arms. She picks up the baby that literally got shot in the face five times by the government man, dumps the baby into the water, and then, of course, dies on top of the lifeless body of Cornelius, her husband, Roddy McDowell. And believe it or not, that is the second best of the Planet of the Apes movie out of the five, I think. I highly recommend you guys watch the first three. It is definitely a very interesting experience. It honestly goes downhill from there once uh, uh, Ricardo Montalban plays a bigger part. And yeah, I wow. said Ricardo Montalban. He he is a part of that series. But um, from hell's heart, I stab at thee. Sorry, and movie. raise a monkey as my slave. <laughs> Maybe if he just had a pet uh, monkey, the monkey would have enlightened him to the ways of humanity, and he would have gotten along with Kirk, you know? <laughs> all right, well, I guess uh, we should probably go ahead and get into all the nitty-gritty wonderful things we have to talk about, because we got a lot to go through today. Um, I did check the old mail sack. You can also, uh, you can always write us at the show. Or send an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that by following us at the SLScast. Once again, though, uh, the old mail sack was empty. So, would you like to go directly to the news, sir? Probably should. All right, then, here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> Let's see here. First up from me, let's see here. We're going to be doing a lot of Oscar coverage here going going out. So I'm going to go ahead and start us off with a little bit of non-Oscar coverage. Uh, let's see here from SlashFilm.com. By way of Jacob Hall, J.J. Abrams says he's done with the remake reboot business. Reboot? <laughs> reboot business. Yes, look at J.J. Abrams' filmography and you'll find a guy with a talent for remaking, rebooting, and remixing. While he's also spearheaded his fair share of wholly original work, he's become a reliable source for any old franchise in need of an, an adrenaline injection to the heart. Mission Impossible 3, Star Trek, Star Wars The Force Awakens, it's kind of his thing. 
But Abrams himself seems ready to move on to other things, saying that he's ready to spread his wings and fly away from the land of reboots and remakes. Speaking with people, he revealed his desire for a change of pace, noting that it's time for him to start making the stuff that other people will feel the burning desire to reboot down the line. Quote, you know, I feel incredibly lucky to have gotten involved in things that I loved when I was a kid. In fact, even Westworld is one of them. But I don't feel any desire to do that again. I feel like I've done enough of that uh, that I'm more excited about working on things that are original ideas that perhaps one day someone else will have to reboot, end quote there. Uh, Following that, he also says, quote, you know, I do think that if you're telling a story that is not moving anything forward, not introducing anything relevant that's not creating a new mythology or an extension of it, then a complete remake of something feels like a mistake, end quote there. Um, you know, what do you think there, Tim? Um, given the success that J.J. Abrams has had in the world of reboots and remakes, etc., um, you know, and also thinking, even when you think about movies, I know we talked a little bit about this before, or last week, I guess, um, because we think of movies like um what 8 millimeter no not 8 millimeter what am i thinking of 30 35 what was oh you mean super 8 super 8 thank you um with super 8 and stuff like that which was clearly an original movie but obviously also based in uh, it was influenced. nearly the same mythos yeah nearly the same mythos as like et e- and uh and whatnot amazing stories that kind of thing so um, you definitely see in J.J. Abrams' work a lot of uh, influence, a lot of stuff, even when he does original things. But, I mean, it's pretty clear that even if you don't necessarily agree with all the things that he does, he's got kind of the Midas touch when it comes to reboots and remakes. Do you think he should stop? Or um, is it time? Is it time? Is it now time like he feels to just go do things that hopefully other people will reboot? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I he's never really totally impressed me all too much. I think once I heard that he basically took Star Trek just because it was a job for him and not because he liked the series. In fact, he didn't like the series. That just kind of put a sour Correct. taste in my mouth towards J.J. Abrams. But yeah, he's sure. other than Super 8 being hit the highlight of his career for me so far, Force Awakens was good. But like you said, he was just kind of... He did a good continuation of other people's work, and I, you know, I, I do. I want to see what he has to offer in the in the in the more originality department. I guess. Right on, right on. All right, well then, real quickly here, I'm going to jump into one other article before I turn it over to you uh, from FierceCable.com by way of Daniel Frankel. 3D TV is officially dead as Sony and LG stop making sets. Yes, perhaps putting to rest a cautionary tale for the pay TV industry about diving headlong into new display technologies, Sony and LG have announced they will stop integrating 3D capabilities into the sets they manufacture this year. Quote... 3D capability was never really universally embraced in the industry for home use, and it's just not a key buying factor when selecting a new TV, unquote, said Tim Alessi, LG's director of new product development to CN, I'm sorry, to CNET. Uh, quote, 
Purchase process research showed it's not a top buying consideration, and anecdotal information indicated that the actual usage was not high. We decided to drop 3D support for 2017 in order to focus our efforts on new capabilities such as HDR, which has much more universal appeal, end quote. Uh, let's see here. Now, it does say that basically consumer electronic companies, pay TV operators and programmers jumped headlong into the home 3D market back in 2010 when James Cameron's avatar grossed nearly $2.8 billion at the global box office and wowed audiences worldwide with the most effective 3D graphics they'd ever seen on a movie screen. However, delivering a consistent level of 3D experience proved difficult for the motion picture industry, which has since relegated 3D to niche premium offering. Now, I'm going to stop the uh, article there. There's a little bit more to the article if you would like to read it, and I would encourage you to do so. Again, FierceCable.com, by way of Daniel Frankel, 3D TV is officially dead as Sony and LG stop making sets. But... Um, of all of my friends, uh, family and everything, I truly only know one person who has the complete setup. And I mean, you literally have to go and get the 3D TV. You have to buy the 3D glasses. Um, they might come with a pair or two, but you generally have to buy more so that people can actually watch the movie with you. You then have to go buy the 3D Blu-ray player, and then you also have to get the 3D media. Now, some of the TVs might be able to kind of approximate or do a facsimile of 3D if you don't have the other components, but you're not really going to get anything worthwhile unless you have it. That's a huge output. Um, generally, the glasses, the really good glasses, um, where they were doing the flicker frames that would run and things, took batteries and were generally around 20 bucks a pop. So you're looking just for four sets, you're looking at 80 bucks plus the batteries, um, plus the Blu-ray player, which generally ran in the neighborhood of 150 bucks, especially in 2010, they were probably two to $300. And then the Blu-rays themselves at 3D Blu-rays were easily 30 to $40 a piece. So it's just ungodly the amount of money you were expected to front for this thing. It, I mean... Where was the incentive to ever get good at it? Because so few people were willing to pay for it. Um, I think this is a move that was poor to begin with. Um, I mean, it's the HD DVD debacle all over again. I don't know. What do you think, Tim, on either of these things? So the TV that I have at home is a Sony 4K 3D TV. And... I love it, man. Well, I, look, I, I know two people now. Yeah, I, I have a. I, I bought a PS4 because I knew it not only did it play Blu-rays and play PS4 games, but it also played 3D. So if you, the number of people that have either a PS4 or an Xbox One, I think that's the latest Xbox uh, that competed it with is, PS4. Sir. Those all play Blu-ray or uh, play a 3D Blu-rays. So I mean. Uh, you know, I, I can totally see where they were coming from when it, when they were wanting to make 3D TVs because they knew, well, for one thing, the number one Blu-ray player you can buy is a PS4. And the number of people that would use their PS4 or who would actually watch a 3D movie would probably own a PS4 because they're there uh, using that type of content. I mean, 3D is also used in video game experiences as well. And I'm sure how the consumers are eating up VR nowadays put even more of a damper on 3D because that is the ultimate immersive experience well that we currently have right now. But there's something cool about 3D because 
for example, I buy the old movies that came out in the 40s or 50s that were released in 3D Blu-ray uh, just a handful of years ago, and I can watch them how they were originally shown back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. For example, a Kiss Me Kate, the musical, was originally a 3D movie. And it's amazing watching that movie now to see how they used the 3D technique back then. Uh, you can get House of Wax on 3D Blu-ray. But, and the great thing about it is both of those movies were maybe... 10 bucks a piece, uh, definitely less than $15 a piece. When it comes to the price point for 3D Blu-rays, it varies significantly. Uh, I can tell you right off the bat that the Star Wars Force Awakens in 3D that just came out a couple months ago is like 29 bucks. I think Kubo and the Two Strings in 3D is 25 bucks. So I, those are definitely movies that I would want to purchase. But they are way too expensive. But I do know in another year or year and a half, they're going to go down significantly. But I can definitely understand how people are a little bit wary when it comes to wanting to spend a lot of money towards 3D when a lot of people, or I don't know if it's a lot of people, but a number of people really don't see the point to it. Especially when they don't take the viewing of it super seriously, like myself. I know exactly where to sit whenever I watch a 3D movie. It has to be at night because it has to be completely dark around you whenever you watch it to get that full effect. You know, you have to get the right angle. You can't be too far to the side or too far above it or you'll see like the distortion from the 3D effect. And I know a lot of people don't want to deal with that. I mean, a lot of people want to eat their popcorn, eat their dinner and have their beer or just lounge on the couch and not have to worry about finding that, you know, precise view to watch a 3D movie on their TV. But on top of it, Samsung, for example, is developing glasses-free 3D 8K TVs, which is pretty cool. And I think, if anything, that is going to be the way of the future. Uh, I'm totally fine with not having to worry about putting on 3D glasses because my 3D glasses are crap. Even if I know exactly where to sit, they're the cheap pair that came with the TV. But having glasses-free 3D TVs will be something that I think not only myself, but many people who can afford it, not say, I mean, I'm not going to be able to afford it, probably. If it came out this year or next year, I wouldn't be able to afford it for another, like, six years whenever they're not going to be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars, which I'm sure they will be because of all the technology that is going to be put into that specific unit or into a single specific unit. But I do think that will be something that will be more consumer friendly in the future. How about that, Matt? Do you think a glasses-free 3D TV would be more consumer friendly than having to worry about putting on your glasses and buying new glasses and not scratching your glasses or... No, because people use multiple screens too much. And even with stuff like stereoscopic, um, your eyes would have to shift focus um, to do to multitask, which is at the I, I think is probably aside from cost and everything else. Ultimately, what really um, put the final nail on the coffin of 3D is to be able to look at your um, phone and stuff, which, I mean, I understand they don't operate the same way even with glasses on, but a lot of people are annoyed by it, but I don't know. Anyway, so it, it's clear that there are differing opinions and different ways to look at the whole 3D phenomenon that was. <laughs> and again, I, I, I like to, I mean, I'd be lying if I said that I don't have to work to get to a, to find that sweet spot to watch a 3D movie and get that full experience. 
And I'm fully aware that a lot of people aren't willing to sit with outstanding posture every time they want to watch <laughs> a two-hour right. 3D uh, movie. So I get it. I get it. But I hate to see it go, oh, too. Indeed. All right, what do you got for us, sir? From io9.gizmodo.com, think the great bird of the sky, the Star Trek fan film lawsuit has settled. This is written by Catherine Trendacosta and actually published uh, this past week. And it says this, The long and winding tale of CBS and Paramount versus Axanar has finally come to an end much later, I think, than anyone wanted. Back in 2015, CBS and Paramount filed a lawsuit against the Star Trek fan film Axanar, alleging copyright infringement. Axanar had raised over $1 million through crowdsourcing to make a prequel movie set in the Star Trek universe. In response to the lawsuit... Axanar's lawyers asked for more specificity on what exactly the owners of Star Trek thought the Star Trek fan film was taking from them. CBS and Paramount's lawyers responded with 28 pages of very specific examples, ranging from the appearance of Vulcans to the whole of the Klingon language. Things got even weirder in May of 2016 when J.J. Abrams stepped onto the fray saying that suing over the film wasn't an appropriate way of dealing with fans, and then he announced, quote, within the next two weeks it will be announced that it is going away and that fans would be able to continue working on their project, end quote. That obviously didn't happen. What did happen was that Paramount and CBS released a set of rules, if followed, would protect fan films from lawsuits. They were complicated and hard to parse. Uh, And I'm going to skip down another paragraph. This was a case where no one looked good. CBS and Paramount were going after fans of one of their largest properties right around when they should have been celebrating the franchise's 50th birthday. Axnar was getting dangerously close to losing this case and setting a very negative example for fan works. Even though nothing going on in this case was legally binding on other cases, it would give a blueprint for suing fans that other studios could follow. No one was getting out of this unscathed. But finally, the two parties have managed to come to an agreement— In it, Axanar Productions and Alec Peters, the man behind the films, acknowledge that Axanar and its prequel, Prelude to Axanar, quote, were not approved by Paramount or CBS, and that both works crossed boundaries acceptable to CBS and Paramount relating to copyright law, end quote. The agreement allows Peters and his company to release Axanar, but only as two 15-minute segments that can be put on YouTube without ads. Catherine Trinacosta, the writer here, Uh, mentions that I am sure one of the reasons that Paramount and CBS were so mad at this film in particular was because it might make money off ads. Prelude to Axnar will still be viewable, but it will also not have ads. And of course, the version that will be released of Axnar is not the version that Peters originally intended to release. Apparently, the agreement requires, quote, substantial, end quote, changes, and that Axnar Hugh to the aforementioned fan film guidelines released by CBS and Paramount. And all quotes there. Matt, so now that this lawsuit has been somewhat, uh, it's not dropped, I guess, but you know they, they've come to terms with one another. Will you now continue to watch Star Trek? Uh, no, nah, I don't care anymore. And then I guess real quick, I'll just mention, I'll just mention, I'll just mention this. 
I'll just mention that James Cameron apparently is coming back to the Terminator franchise. You heard that right? Via Deadline.com, he's back. James Cameron to Godfather Terminator with Deadpool Helmer, Tim Miller. This is written by Mike Fleming Jr. And it says this, exclusive... James Cameron, who regains certain rights to his prize creation, The Terminator, in 2019, is godfathering a new iteration of the film that might finally get it right in drawing a close in the battle between humans and Skynet. Sources said that Cameron, whose copyright reversion happens 35 years after the release of the 1984 classic, is in early talks with Deadpool director and VFX whiz Tim Miller to direct a reboot and conclusion of one of cinema's greatest science fiction tales. David Ellison, whose Skydance co-financed Terminator Genesis, is bankrolling an exploratory effort that includes engaging some top-flight science fiction authors to find the movie creatively. Ellison still holds many Terminator rights after his 2013 acquisition from sister and Anna Purina principal Megan Ellison. She bought them in 2011 at Cannes for $20 million. Uh, and if you want to read more about it, again, just check out this Deadline.com article. He's back, James Cameron, to Godfather Terminator with Deadpool Helmer, Tim Miller. My, uh, I almost called you Mike. Matt, what do you think about this? Do you want to see a conclusion to the Terminator franchise, finally, with James Cameron and Tim Miller directing? No! Because no one, um, I, I believe that if anybody could do it, um... It would be James Cameron, but at the same time, he has been gone from the Terminator franchise for so long that coming back, especially trying to do something where um, even in a supervisory role or, you know, co-directing or really, you know, producing or something, but still listed in the, uh, you know, behind the camera cast and letting Tim Miller do whatever else. I just, it's a recipe for a disaster. I understand that the rights are finally going to revert back or whatnot, but, um, you know, if he really just wants to let it die, then he should just let it die and then do what the guys from back to the future are doing, which is you will literally have to wait till I am dead before you can even attempt to try and resurrect this franchise. So he's got the money. He's got the clout. Let it go. And there you have it. I agree completely. All right. Well, I was uh, just due to time, though, uh, due to time, I'm going to go ahead and actually call my news as it is, because the two remaining news pieces that I have are about Oscar nominate uh, nominees. And we've got a whole month to talk about Oscar nominees. And so uh, did you want to go over any Oscar nominations before we start covering the movies there, sir? Or did you just want to jump into the movies? No, yeah, actually, let's do go over some of this Oscar nomination stuff, because we spoke about it uh, a little bit during pre-show. And uh, I, I enjoyed some of your comments uh, towards towards one particular movie. That movie, well, that movie's Arrival, and it sounded like you were not expecting it to have been nominated for so much. I really and truly am surprised this movie is nominated for Best Picture, among other things. And let me start with Best Picture. It's just not the Best Picture. Like... It's not even in the top nine. And they've got nine movies up here. It's not even in the top nine. Of the, I would have rather seen... Let me think here. Swiss Army Man? No, not Swiss Army Man. I'm, I'm, let, me, let, let me think here. You know what? Okay, I got... Um, yeah. Fucking Moana. 
All right. I think it's a great animated film. I'm glad it's up in the... I would have rather seen Moana or Zootopia, okay, instead of this fucking arrival. Um, it's, it's literally an insult. No, nobody likes this movie. People pretend... It's honestly... I think they're afraid of being called idiots for not getting it if they didn't nominate it for Best Picture. I think that's what it is. I think they were just scared. Um, as Tim points out, it's also in there for uh, cinematography. It's uh, directing and film editing as well. Editing! It's in there for fucking editing! I told him, I told, I told Tim when we were doing the pre-show, I said somebody was clearly blowing somebody on the nominee, on the nominating committee because how the fuck does a movie this poorly edited make it to, but I don't, I, I don't, I don't get it. Cause it's a movie that relies on the editing to tell the story. And I think that's kind of why it got nominated, but it, uh, you know, as what you can garner from Matt's complete distaste for the movie. <laughs> Uh, or semi-distaste. It might not be full-fledged distaste, but um, the movie relies so much on on the editing, but it still did not do a good job. It still did not achieve that level of intellectualism that I think that it was trying to achieve. I mean, shit, I didn't like Interstellar because I thought it was trying to be too smart, but it came across kind of dumb. I thought that movie was better edited and better put together. <laughs> sure. Sure. I mean, okay. What about a movie like honestly? What what about a movie like uh, Loving? Right? Loving would have been a great movie yeah. to put on there. I I would have even taken. Uh, let's see here. I, I I would have even taken a movie like oh, how about The Accountant? I'd have taken the goddamn accountant. Um, I don't know. Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Just you know, just to think of movies. Um, you know that I see. How about um, I can't even. I don't know. I just. It, it just well, I, Dennis Villanueva, the director of Arrival, is the hot thing right now. He, the um, witch, the witch would have been a good one. Oh, you know, I'm actually surprised the witch is not on here. That would have been a really good one, actually. I dope would have been a good uh, oh, nominee yeah, for see? something. Um, I was actually surprised that Eye in the Sky. Didn't get an editing nomination either. I thought that movie was excellently edited. You know, you know what? You're putting a movie up here like fucking Arrival, but honestly, I think you could have done Pee Wee's Big Fucking Holiday instead of Arrival, and people would be more accepting. Um, it's yeah, I don't know. This movie just is not. Yeah, I don't, it's, okay, I'm done. Hardcore Henry, hardcore. Well, how about Hardcore Henry for editing? That was some creative editing. Uh, I kind of liked Arrival a little more than Hardcore Henry. <laughs> For actor in a leading role, uh, how, how are you with these picks? With I know you haven't seen Captain Fantastic yet. I thought Viggo Mortensen in Captain Fantastic was the best thing about Captain Fantastic, which is why I think this movie is only nominated once. But I, I'm kind of surprised by Ryan Gosling. And I mentioned this last week that I thought Andrew Garfield did a better job in Martin Scorsese's silence than he did Hacksaw Ridge. True. I, and I'm not sure, I, I guess maybe 
Silence is going to try and do something for next year, I guess. Uh, but, um, well, I guess it would have to because it came out in January. No, no, no. It um, came out in December. Out here in December. Did it? Yeah. Oh, that's right. It's no, it nominated for a couple yeah, things, like, isn't it? So, I think it got nominated. It? Well, I guess we'll run our way down. Okay, so real quick, just in case, since we didn't really cover it. Best Picture nominees were Arrival, Fences, Hacksaw Ridge, Hell or High Water, Hidden Figures, La La Land, Lion, Manchester by the Sea, and Moonlight. The actor in a leading role, we have Casey Affleck for Manchester by the Sea, Andrew Garfield, Hacksaw Ridge, Ryan Gosling, La La Land, Viggo Mortensen, Captain Fantastic, and Denzel Washington, Fences. Um, you know, honestly, as much as I, um, I, like, I, I really appreciate, like I said, what Andrew Garfield's been doing. Um, and I think that uh, Silence is a good movie. And honestly, it's kind of a toss up for me. I think they're both really, really good in really, really different ways. So just the fact that he's been nominated for either one is fine for me, but I think I would probably lean a little bit more into Hacksaw Ridge than I would on, um, Silence. So, um, yeah, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I guess I'm looking forward to seeing Captain Fantastic to see Viggo Mortensen because it's been a long time since we've seen him up here, and uh, it's good. But um, Spoiler without... alert, you see Viggo's Mortensen. Woohoo, sexy. And it's like... Didn't we, didn't we already get to see that? We got to see that in uh, Russian Promises or whatever. Eastern. Right? Eastern. <laughs> Eastern Promises. That's the, that's yeah. the porn. That's the porn version. Oh, Russian prominence. Okay. <laughs> ah, Russian prominence. You saw his Russian um, prominence. <laughs> no, um, honestly though, I, if, I mean, uh, I'm sure we'll be able to revisit this later on. But no, I'm, um, I'm kind of pulling for Andrew Garfield overall at this point. Really? Um, yeah, Denzel Washington did a fantastic job. Just, to, I mean, he really just did a fantastic job. But I felt oh, overall he was outperformed by Andrew Garfield. I thought Casey Affleck did a great job. I just don't think. You know, and I'm, and like you, um, I think Ryan Gosling just got lumped in because La La Land hit, they, they were just trying to give it as many nominations as possible. So, supporting actor was uh, the nominations actually caught my eye. You got, uh, Michael Shannon for Nocturnal Animals, Dave Patel Lion, which yes, we haven't seen yet. Yes. Uh, so, so excited for Michael Shannon on that one. Yeah. That, that surprised the hell out of me. I was not expecting to see that. Uh, same with Lucas Hedges for Manchester by the Sea. Of course, Jeff Bridges, Hell or High Water. and um, Also very excited for that. That's going to be a really tough one for me. And you notice they're both kind of playing the same character, Michael Shannon and Jeff Bridges. <laughs> they kind of are, yeah, yeah. And uh, Mahershala Ali. I Pardon me if I said that wrong. Hey, um, you know what? I He has been just popping up all over the place. I really never noticed him that I can think of prior to watching House of Cards. And, as Remy, he's uh, awesome in that. Yeah, he's yeah. Remy, and I mean, I've been just so excited to see him doing other things. And then with Moonlight, holy crap, really? That was what a great role. So I'm excited for him. Yeah, he was great in Moonlight. I know we're going to be talking about that in the show, but he was definitely a highlight in that movie. But yeah, I'm I'm of course going to root for Jeff Bridges, but I, I like Lucas Hedges. You know, Surprise I me. think I think this is okay. Once again, I think this this falls into the justification piece, um, especially post Golden Globes. That um, you know everybody's just going on Manchester by the Sea. Oh, Manchester by the Sea, Manchester by the Sea. 
I, I was looking at some stuff for uh, on Amazon today, and they're all like, Amazon, you know, has a big, huge banner, six Golden Globes, you know, da 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 da, uh, for Manchester by the Sea, because they're, you know, pushing it uh, to buy it on Blu ray. And I think that's just what this is a byproduct of. I don't think he did a terrible job by any stretch of the imagination. I just don't think it was that mind blowing either. So, you know, I guess. I guess we will we'll know more when we watch Lion. And are you hurt that Storks didn't get nominated for Best Animated <laughs> Feature Film? <laughs> Not even a little bit. <laughs> Not even a little bit. So, um, I really do like, though, that three of the five actresses, Best Supporting Actress, are um, black. That is awesome. Um, Viola Davis who is just a complete powerhouse. Octavia Spencer, who is obviously just start showing up, even though we, you know, had our issues with, um, hidden figures. Um, this, I mean, we, we both agreed it was completely, I mean, it was just well acted. Yeah. So yeah. all the way around. So, so definitely not surprising that Octavia Spencer, who is also so hot right now. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty up there. But I am pulling for uh, Viola, though. She she was great. And I, I've got to say that... Hey, I wouldn't be mad if Naomi Harris won. Yeah, well, she was great, too. Yeah, she she was the mom, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but um, I flip-flopped it. I realized this when I was editing the episode last week. I got Taraji P. Henson and Octavia Spencer mixed up. I was saying that Octavia Spencer played... Uh, the bookworm uh, lady who got hired and got picked on, and she kept having to run the rain to go back to the the black uh, bathrooms. Oh and, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Yeah. So that was um, that is Taraji P Henson. But yeah, Octavia Spencer uh, has been nominated and won. Uh, she won for the Help, I think, a handful of years ago. She did. So she did. Yeah. Um, let's see here, and then of course you got actress in a leading role. We've got Isabel Hoopert. For L, uh, for L, which we haven't seen yet. Um, Ruth Nega, of course, for Loving. Natalie Portman for Jackie. Emma Stone for La La Land. Meryl Streep for Flo- Florence Foster Jenkins. Um, so far, I, we haven't seen Ellie yet, or at least I haven't. So we'll, I mean, clearly we're going to be watching that for the show. But um, she right now, as far as I'm it. concerned, uh, well, as far as I'm concerned, the competition is between Ruth Nega and Natalie Portman. So. Um, and and leaning heavily heavily towards Ruth Nega, so personally that's mine. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Animated feature film though, we still need to see two of them. Right now, I'm still leaning on Moana. If I had to rank them thus far, without having seen My Life as a Zucchini or The Red Turtle, um, it would be Moana, Kubo, and then Zootopia. So. Um, I don't know where you land on that. But, uh, Kubo yeah. is my number one so far. I'm very much looking forward to uh, the Red Turtle. And my life as a zucchini is supposed to be so good that we'll be getting an, an American remake in the next year or two. Wow. Apparently. Yeah. And then we've got uh, cinematography. Again, Arrival. <laughs> uh, La La Land, Lion, Moonlight, and Silence. And so... Um, uh, again, we'll, we'll be doing uh, Lion here pretty quickly. Um, La La Land is a very pretty movie. I can't say that it's not. Arrival, what the fuck is it doing here? Moonlight, I don't know, man. That's also really, 
we'll talk about that more. But honestly, Silence is just, it is a stunning movie. And of course, since there is a lot of um, lackluster dialogue, not because it's not good. I say lackluster. That's not the right word. Uh, limited in certain ways dialogue, hence the you know movie Silence. Um, it does rely heavily on cinematography. So I could see, I don't know. I'm kind of torn between Silence, Moonlight, and La La Land, but I would be okay if La La Land didn't make it at this point. I don't know. We'll have to revisit that later. Um, what do you think there, Tim? Without seeing Lion, either Silence or La La Land, I've, I mean, because Arrival is being Arrival, I could totally see <laughs> Arrival taking it, but I, I don't know. I think... Hollywood likes to jerk itself off to itself, so I can see La La Land winning it. But true, yeah, true. Uh, let's see. So then, okay, and then costume design, of course, Allied, Jackie, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, La La Land, and Florence Foster Jenkins. Um, I don't know. None of them really. I guess Jackie for I me. Jackie or La La Land. Uh, you know, I don't know. We'll have to probably again. When it comes time to make official predictions, I guess we can, um, you know, we, we can, uh, what what is the word? Uh, stress, I guess. We can stress about it a little bit more. Uh, directing, um, Arrival, Den- Dennis uh, Villanueva, Hacksaw Ridge, Mel-, Mel Gibson, La La Land, Damien Chazelle, Manchester by the Sea, Kenneth Lonergan, and Moonlight, Barry Jenkins. For me, this is just a two-man race between Mel Gibson and Barry Jenkins. Um and I want both of them to win for different reasons. And I I kind of fifty one forty nine in favor of Mel Gibson. Can I can I recommend there. something uh for you to either watch or listen to? Hmm. The Hollywood Reporter on their YouTube page, they do a series of round table discussions and they're all like an hour, an hour and ten, an hour and fifteen minutes long. And so they did one last week over directors. So it was Barry Jenkins uh, Damien Chazelle, Mel Gibson, um, who else was there? Who else was there? Uh, Oliver Stone. And... Oh, like these these were the guys actually there talking? Um, not all these or guys. They, or these were the people that were being talked about? No, no, they, they were there talking. Wow. Yeah, so they were all having the discussion. Their questions were being asked. And it's all about like influence, like what drives them, what influences them. And they have a lot of great series. So around this time... Uh, you'll see, I think one, this past week also, one uh, about the actors came out, Casey Affleck and Andrew Garfield and a number of other directors are there. But it's very fascinating hearing all these guys converse with one another and, you know, like 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 what piques their interest and, and hearing them go on off on their own little conversations. It's really cool. So I, I highly recommend you guys check out that series. It's the Hollywood Reporter Roundtable Discussions. Sweet. Uh, well, let's see here. And then moving quickly, because I guess, you know, if we're going to do the whole thing, let's do the whole thing. Uh, documentary feature, which we haven't really covered at all this year. Uh, we've got Fire at Sea, I Am Not Your Negro, Life Animated, OJ Made in America, and 13th. Um, so let's see here. And then, of course, we've got film editing, <laughs> Arrival, <laughs> Axel Ridge, John Gilbert, Heller High Water, Jake Roberts, Moonlight, Nat Sanders, and Joy Mc- Mcmillan, and then La La Land, Top Cross. Um, foreign language film, again, we haven't covered those either. Land of Mine, Amanda called Ove, The Salesman, Tana, and Tony Erdman. 
Uh, makeup and hairstyling, a man called Ove, Star Trek Beyond, and Suicide Squad. Uh, music, original score, Jackie, La La Land, Lion, Passengers, and Moonlight. Musical, I'm sorry, music, original song is Audition and City of Stars from La La Land. Can't Stop the Feeling from Trolls, How Far I'll Go from Moana, and The Empty Chair from Jim the James Foley something or whatever. Um, let's see here. Then, yeah, uh, production design was Arrival, La La Land, Fantastic Piece, and Where to Find Them, Passengers, and Hail Caesar. Um, sound editing, Arrival, Deepwater Horizon, Hacksaw Ridge, Sully, and La La Land. Sound mixing, Arrival, Hacksaw Ridge, La La Land, 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi, and Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. Uh, visual effects, Deepwater Horizon, Doctor Strange, The Jungle Book, Rogue One, and Kubo and the Two Strings. Which one here? This one's kind of an interesting uh, one. What do you think there, Tim? For the visual effects? Yeah, visual effects. Well, it's hardly ever does a movie like Kubo and the, and the Two Strings get nominated for best visual effects i see it between rogue one and the jungle book the jungle book was a movie shot entirely in a warehouse in downtown los angeles and it was all computer all of it was computer rogue one i say rogue one because of the basically the feat of creating a character and sure, doing it, Tarkin, yeah. yeah, and but they really didn't do it all too well. So I think I'm leaning more towards the Jungle Book, even though I think Kubo and the Two Strings would have been, would be like an awesome surprise. Right on, right on. Uh, we've also got, let's see here, and then the last two, of course, writing adapted screenplay was Arrival, Fences, Hidden Figures, Lion and Moonlight, and then original screenplay, Hell or High Water, La La Land, The Lobster, 20th Century Women, and Manchester by the Sea. So we'll we'll you know get into more of those as we go along, but uh, yeah, it's a pretty interesting field overall. And aside from Arrival showing up, uh, Arrival arriving way too fucking much. Um, it's a pretty good list this year, I think. So it'll be fun. <sighs> Do you feel out of breath? Kind of, sorta. <laughs> <sighs> Anyways, all right. Well, then uh, I think as we said, we've got four movies this week, and we're gonna be I, I, we're uh, gonna be suspending our bonus segments here for the next few weeks as we plow through our movies. Basically, after all is said and done, we did really, really well this year. Tim's guiding us through the movies as we went this year um, for selection. Uh, really paid off. So we we only have fourteen movies to watch, and that's even trying to count the more obscure ones like sound design and stuff like that and adapted screenplay, what have you. Um, so we're going to knock them out. We're going to do five movies this week. And the big bulk of them is really the documentaries and the foreign films. So we're going to kind of mix them up as best we can. Uh, so, so that we have a nice mix of what, of, uh, what people would like versus maybe some of the more artistic choices that people may or may not be into. Um, but hey, we've been doing this for six goddamn years. So. By God, you know it's Oscar season. We're covering the movies that are nominated. Um, so yeah, so no third, no bonus segments here for the next few weeks. Uh, we will, of course, keep you posted when we jump those in. And without further ado, shall we do the movies? Let's do it. All right, folks, here we go. It's the movies. <laughs> And this week's movies are Jackie, Patriot's Day, Moonlight, and Split. 
Where would you like to start, sir? Why don't we continue on the Oscar train, the Oscar nominees train, and uh, hit up Jackie. Sounds like a plan. All right. Jackie is a 2016 biographical drama film directed by Pablo Lorraine's, written by Noah Oppenheim, stars Natalie Portman as Jackie, and is, of course, following her life basically after the 1963 assassination of JFK. Um, and it is primarily based on her social life versus her private life, but a lot of the gleaned information comes from Theodore H. White's Life magazine interview. And then, of course, it does focus on her life after, including other, um, uh, including other potential loves and her dealings with the Johnsons and stuff like that. Um, all right. So this is a really, really interesting movie. And it's nice in that everybody always has done, they, they focus on JFK. They focus on his presidency. They focus on Bay of Pigs. They focus on Cuba as a whole. Uh, they focus, of course, a ton on his assassination all of the conspiracy theories and stuff like that. There's really not been a whole lot dedicated to just Jackie. There have been some. There's been some miniseries and stuff like that that have been done over the years. Um, but nothing that would you, you could consider concise enough to truly be put into a film. And so it's nice that they're really kind of do that. And of course, in today's day and age, we have the ability to better than ever in, in the true grand, grandeur that was, that was able to show kind of like what Camelot was like to a small extent, even though granted we're focusing after the, primarily after the death of JFK. Um, but you get to see that, you know, that high definition really makes a difference. A lot of the fact, a lot of the stuff that they can do with CGI matte technology and stuff like that really makes a difference in trying to put together something like this to help you see and understand that as much as people idolize JFK, and as much as he has his his legacy played an important part in the political um shaping of America, so did Jackie. Um it was I mean and, and it's really interesting to see how the public side of her would contrast not really compare, but almost completely contrast with the private side. She's very demure in public, she's you know very debutante, but behind the scenes, we're dealing with a woman who was not afraid to walk in on her husband in a meeting and throw panties at his head and say, could you please tell your women folk, you know, to pick up after themselves? This is the kind of woman that we're dealing with here, okay? Uh, that doesn't happen in the movie, but, I mean, that did happen in real life. Um, so... Really, all you have to go on in this movie is pretty much just the acting um the rest of the movie falls into place on its own in terms of its cinematography in terms of special effects and then you know so really what you're left here is just acting um and it's well done all the way around however um what holds this movie back for me is that while it's very clear that natalie portman is very very good um, most of the other people around her, like Peter Sarsgaard, uh, who plays Robert F. Kennedy, and, um, like Capspar Phillipson, who plays, uh, I'm sorry, John Carroll Lynch, I mean, who, who plays LBJ, um, you've got all of these other characters and stuff, and quite frankly, they're just trying too hard. 
and I and and I don't know. I kind of feel that's partly on the director, but I think it's also a lot to do with them and their interpretations of the characterizations. Um, and I think again, some of it falls on the director for letting it make it to the screen, but. Um, it's, and again, it's not that they're, it, I'm not trying to say it's hammy. It's not overdone, um, per se. I just think that they were trying too hard to make these characters larger than life. And to a certain point, it does play out, it, it does bear out poorly for the movie because, for example, like LBJ, like there, there's some kind of bad blood between, um, between Jackie and the Johnsons that kind of goes, but that, wasn't really so so you kind of see these things that play out um in a way and especially with someone like lbj who was so over the top in real life um you it's just being able to walk that kind of fine line and be able to make it count on screen so at the end of the day i give this one four stars out of five stars it's really well acted um overall even though the the best part of the acting is really laid at the feet of Natalie Portman um cinematography is good and everything else it's an enjoyable movie and if you like historical or biopics then you won't go wrong with this four stars out of five what do you got there Tim Jackie is a very personal film and I don't mean that in its storytelling only but as well as in the way it was shot most of the movie, most of the framing is from the lower abdomen up to the head. And pretty much you're left with this very personal framing throughout the entire movie. You see her eyes, you see her expression, you get a sense of what she's thinking. And because of how the movie is shot and framed, you feel like you were a part of the drama that is unfolding in front of you. There's not a lot of long shots. There aren't many establishing shots unless it is required for a, not necessarily to paint a pretty picture, but to really drive home the mood of the setting. But it's a very personal film that I think that is best described as dreamlike. The movie makes a point to go into detail, especially close to the end of the movie, that Jackie Kennedy felt like she was in a dream this entire time. And then after her husband got shot and you know ultimately died, the dream was over. And now she's thrushed into reality all by herself. It's just absolutely fascinating, but ultimately flawed. I thought that the movie was great for the first 50 minutes, but then after that 50-minute mark, I got very distracted by the direction that the movie then took. After that 50-minute mark, the movie decided to focus on her vanity and Bobby Kennedy's vanity, and so that is where the movie loses me. So she's in this dreamlike state when she's dealing with the, the the almost immediate aftermath or the immediate aftermath of her husband's death, the grief process, the funeral process, and then it hits and then it goes directly into her vanity. And the movie becomes more about 
her in that way. And that's fine. I understand it had a touch on her vanity because of the type of person she was. But the movie, unfortunately, had a hard time of transitioning from that dreamlike setup into what she was really like and what she was actually going through. Um, Maybe that's a stage of grief, and maybe that was the whole point of the movie, where it just automatically happened. But in a way, she came across more childish than sympathetic. And I thought that was handled poorly by the direction. But other than that, it's a beautifully made movie. It's beautifully produced, performed, and crafted. I think the only other knock against this movie is that I felt that Jackie's performance was a little forced as well. More so than all the other supporting characters. I thought all the supporting characters did a great job. But what really kind of took me out of the movie in the first place was her cadence, her voice uh, that she gave Jackie. And it took me a while of thinking whether or not Jackie, Jacqueline Kennedy, actually spoke like that or not. And she did, for the most part. So I guess all <laughs> what took me out of the movie at the beginning uh, pertaining to her voice was just something that I had ultimately questioned because in some way it, it just sounds a little strange. At least it's something that I'm not, and I think a lot of us aren't used to hearing when it comes to somebody's voice. But ultimately, Jackie is a wonderful film. I thought it was well worth my money. Again, beautifully shot, beautifully produced, beautifully performed, despite the issue that I had with tonal changes and what the film decided to focus on midway through the film. So I give Jackie four out of five. So far, we're we're lining up with these Oscar movies, Matt. Hey, you gotta like that, right? <clears throat> All right, uh, where do you want to go from here, sir? How about the uh, uh, the Academy Award-nominated Patriots Day? No, I'm kidding, Moonlight. <laughs> All right, Moonlight, 2016 American drama film written and directed by Barry Jenkins. Uh, it's based on a play, um, and it stars Trevante Rhodes, Andre Holland, Janelle Monet, Ashton Sanders, Gerald Jerome, Naomi Harris, uh, Mahershala Ali and Alex Hibbert. And basically, we are dealing with a young boy um, named uh, Sharon. And he is, and you're watching him through three distinct periods in his life. Um, and, and he, this is not a, this is not a kid who uh, has it easy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and so, things things happen despite despite all of his good intentions and despite his trying to make his life work for him that creates chaos in his life and ultimately causes him to go down a particular path um this movie deals with a lot of racial identity stuff it deals with a lot of realities that are uncomfortable i say not just for um not not just for white people but for black people as well and i think that that is such an honest move in a film like this that it makes it i think that will create ultimately its universal appeal uh going forward and i think that's one of the reasons why this movie is so strong um it also deals with um sexual overtones and stuff and a lot of the ways that people 
can deal with exploration in their life. Um, it's just really, really neat all the way around. I absolutely thought this movie was outstanding. I, I, I literally only have one problem and it was enough to knock it out of a perfect score. Um, and it's, and, and I was trying to say, is it really just a nitpick? Is it really just a nitpick? And I felt that no, because it plays such a huge component to the way that the movie itself plays out that as a central plot element, I had to pull the star. I had to pull a quarter star, quarter star. Um, so I know we, we've been toying with the idea of having a spoiler section at the end, but I, I, it's too central to the review. So spoiler alert, um, you know, give me 15 or 20 seconds and then pop back in. Sharon and his friend Kevin become more than friends briefly, if you will. And despite that exploration of homosexuality, we then have a very, what I can, what I term to be a, um, a plot device that basically does nothing but hurt the movie or just cause it to go forward, which is basically, uh, Sharon's friend Kevin basically has to, um, knock Sharon down. He has to punch him. <coughs> and, this this whole scene sets up basically the third act and i felt like it was just it, it wasn't a bait and switch um but it wasn't organic either the whole scenario felt forced to me and i felt like it was la- i truly felt like it was lazy storytelling and while it still works on a large, uh, in, in the very largest sense of the word, because it still creates something that helps the movie overall, I felt that there could have been something much more uh, engrossing, much more dynamic that would have worked. The scene itself is powerful. The scene itself doesn't make the movie bad, but it's almost as like you could come, it was almost like you could just see it coming and it just felt too forced. So you see this thing that you see the hazing thing that happens and it sets up uh, the third act and it just didn't work for me. That being said, everything else in the movie is fantastic. So fantastic, such great acting, such a powerful story. Um, any kind of technical things that you would have. I mean, clearly it's still, like we said, I mean, it was already nominated for like editing and all that kind of stuff. So, um, it's not just the acting. Everything on the whole is so good with this movie. So 4.75 out of 5. Um, that one key issue is the only thing that prevents it from being a full five star movie. What do you got there, Tim? I agree on everything you just said pretty much except the uh except what you didn't like about it this is a 4.5 out of 5 movie for me it it's a beautiful story it's a wonderfully made film uh you can tell that this is a movie that is important for the actors for the director for everyone involved it's just one of those movies where it has a lot to offer because there's so much love behind it that you cannot help but as an audience member, feel all that love. 
It's so good that I hate that I have little bitty nitpicky things to say about it. And there's only one that I think that's really worth mentioning, and I think that's just a slight pacing issues. Um, the movie starts off with a bang. The entire film is broken down to three parts, each part taking place at a different point of this boy's life. I guess it's hard to say boy, because when the movie ends, he's a full-grown man. But in each part, he's affected in some way, which changes the course on his uh, of his outlook on life. But by the time you get to the third part of the movie, I just felt that's where it lacked something. Uh, I don't know if in the pace department, maybe, but uh, it, it felt like that this part of the film had to be significantly different in... I guess I just don't really know the right way to put it, but just saying that the pacing felt a little bit off. And that could be a nitpicky thing because overall I thoroughly enjoyed this movie, yet I am giving it a 4.5 out of 5 because of it. Luckily, between you and I, Matt, it's still going to keep that 4.75 out of 5. Excellent performances all around. I think uh, the young boy that they got for the first part did an excellent job. Uh, same thing with the uh, uh, the teenager and then again the um, older. I, I would say maybe he's, what, late 20s mm-hmm. during part three? Sounds about right. Yeah, 27-ish. I would, yeah, so sure, late 20s. But yeah, so you have you have Alex Hibbert playing him as a child. Um, Ashton Sanders as a teenager and then Trevante Rhodes uh, playing him as an adult and they're all and I agree Tim totally agree great performances all the way around yeah excellent performances it's just my issue was with how they wrapped character what you know it, it just something just really didn't feel right and right now I just really can't completely pinpoint it cool cool all right well then uh, we've definitely run out of Oscar nominee stuff to talk about <laughs> Where do you want to go from here? Patriot's Day. Okay, Patriot's Day. This, of course, is a 2016 American drama thriller film. It is about the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing and subsequent terrorist manhunt. Uh, It's directed by Peter Berg, and it stars Mark Wahlberg, Kevin Bacon, John Goodman, J.K. Simmons, and Michelle Monaghan, amongst other people in smaller roles based on the amalgams that they were. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, there's not really much to say here. Mark Wahlberg is basically plays a police department sergeant who is constantly finds himself in the thick of everything that's happening. And so he will be, you know, he's kind of like your touchstone to all of the different events and how they, you know, coordinated together. So you, you deal with the victims, you deal with the investigation, you deal with the manhunt, you deal with the capture, and it's, um, and, and your primary point to all of that will be Mark Wahlberg's character, but you're gonna interact with a whole bunch of other people throughout. Um, okay, so there's, this is not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but, it's basically just kind of a, uh, I don't know. It, it it just feels to me like it's just kind of there. And yet it's not an okay movie. It's it is a three-star movie. I cannot say anything bad or good about it. I don't want to leave it at like a two and a half star where it's like, ah, oh, it's just okay. Because the act the caliber of the acting is good, the caliber of the storytelling is good, but it's really just uh, it really just seems to only do those things. 
it's doing its job, but it's doing its job well. But it's not doing its job spectacularly. So I like the movie fine. The acting is fine, but it doesn't. It just doesn't grab you any further than that. So I give it uh, three stars out of five. And take it away, Tim. So I like this movie a little bit more than you. I thought it was an entertaining movie. It was difficult for me to figure out which scenes were from the actual event itself opposed to what they went back and shot. That's not what I found entertaining. I guess I kind of rushed those two together pretty quick, but uh, those are two separate thoughts. I think there's something interesting about filmmaking like that, and because the event, the bombing happened just four years ago now, or shit, uh, yeah, it's four years ago, um, they're able to do things more like this for to enhance, I guess, the cinematic experience. And I, I guess that's kind of a backhanded compliment to the movie, because when I say that it, it enhanced the cinematic experience, that's what added to the overall entertainment factor of this movie, when I don't think this movie necessarily should have been about entertainment, or at least that entertaining or as entertaining as it was. And with saying that, it's a good movie. I thought it was well made. I think Peter Berg has a knack for making these really tense, real-life, true-story thrillers, especially when facts are very important to him. And of what I know, I think this movie is pretty factually accurate. I was impressed with his work on handling the Deepwater Horizon story, as well as the Lone Survivor story. So this guy, again, he has a knack for making movies like this. And I just kind of got the feeling that he, he was going with the flow when he's now like getting into the motion of doing, uh, you know, tug at the heartstrings and he knows exactly how to cue the waterworks, especially. The novelty of his filmmaking of, of these movies have kind of worn thin, I think. You, I mean, you pretty much know what to expect. But again, it's an entertaining movie, and I hate saying that it's an entertaining movie given the subject matter and given, again, how soon this actually happened. But it's an important movie for Peter Berg. It's also a very important movie for uh, Mark Wahlberg. They wanted to make this movie. It was it was like a passion. Like they, they had to tell this story. And when it comes down to it, you feel it. I felt their passion. I felt their love for Boston. I felt their devastation. And that's where I think the movie ultimately succeeds. So I give this one, despite its flaws, 3.75 out of 5. Again, it's just that awkwardness of being as entertained as I was. 3.75 out of 5. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, um, then I guess that basically leaves us with... Split. Uh, 2016 American psychological horror films written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, film stars James McAvoy, Anya Taylor-Joy, and Betty Buckley. And it basically tells the story of a guy with 23 different personalities who kidnaps three girls. Um, and, yeah, I can't really say... Um, uh, I will only say it is an in-universe movie for Shyamalan. So take that, take with that, take from that what you will. Um, all right. So 
I don't know if you guys have ever seen a movie called Identity. It is a really interesting uh, movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I own it. Um, it's got John Cusack's Ray Liotta and, oh golly gee willikers, now I'm going to have to look it up because I want to get this guy's name right. Identity Film. Um, yeah, let's see here. Okay. Um, dun, 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 dun. Uh, uh, uh. Pruitt Taylor Vince. Okay. Um, this guy, it put Pruitt Taylor Vince on my, uh, radar. But basically, it follows a dude, uh, that, that movie, the identity, follows a movie uh, of a guy who's got like six or seven personalities and they're trying to, uh, and, and he's trying to figure out who's battling for control and who's gonna win, right? Kind of a set, kind of a scenario. In this movie, uh, Split, we have someone who does have all of these, uh, identities, but actually has them managed for the most part. He gets psychological help and everything like that, and yet at the same time, um, things are falling apart in his head. So, we have a really interesting setup in terms of it, but at the same time, it's not as unique as people think it might be. But it's still entertaining as hell. And the reason why is because of James McAvoy. This is a guy who just can... I mean, this guy could act his way out of a fucking wet paper bag. And the bag would be intact when he was done. That's how good I think James McAvoy is. Um... It doesn't rely on too much splashiness in terms of where it's doing its scares. Uh, instead, it uses its roundtable format of revolving personalities to make it scary. Because you get to see different sides of, this per of the personalities being portrayed through James McAvoy. But at the same time, you truly, like Forrest Gump says, you never know what you're going to get, right? that's where the scariness of this movie comes in. And that's what salvages this movie's horror potential. Um, I think it's, uh, I, I think it's very fun. I think it's really well done. I think that it shares some things in common with identity. And most people don't know that to appreciate that. But, um, at the end of the day, the only thing that I really want to drag from the, the only thing that really kind of drags it down. And it's not by a whole lot is that, um, there is one of the crucial plot points revolves the personalities themselves and something that the personalities kind of plot on their own. And that particular plot point for me really felt kind of contrived because there wasn't really a need to have it. Um, and yet I think that falls squarely on Shamalala. And because of, remember, I said it's a, you know, it's an in-universe film. And I think he was working too hard to make that happen. Um, and uses the particular plot point that the, of the personalities and what they're doing to enforce that. So at the end of the day, very entertaining, a lot of fun, 4.5 out of 5. I can't believe Shyamalan did it. I really had written this dude off completely, but you know what? I, you know, I am cautiously optimistic about his next film. Bring us home there, Tim. I, I was rooting for him from the very beginning. I mean, even his worst movies, granted, I think probably his worst movie is The Last Airbender, which I have not seen. 
uh, probably second to worst movie was... Why does After Earth suck? The environmentalist one with Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> or Donnie Wahlberg. I forget which one's in it. I think it Mark was Mark Wahlberg. Wahlberg, yeah. Even that one showed a little bit of promise. And th- there was something interesting, at least, about it. Even if, ultimately, it wasn't a very good film. Fuck, his first two movies are fantastic. Signs in Sixth Sense. And The Village... The vi- I don't want to say The Villager. <laughs> God. The Village. I think it's still very good in its own right. It has excellent performances. He knows how to get excellent performances out of people. And he knows how to craft uh, either really good to decent characters. Uh, again, minus a couple of the movies that he has made. Why does After Earth suck? But... Split really takes the cake in his latter filmography. James McAvoy is the best part of this movie. All three girls that get kidnapped do a wonderful job, especially the main girl. Um, The psychiatrist woman is okay for the most part. But unfortunately, with his latter films, he's kind of gone... uh, Shyamalan Alon has kind of gone the James Wan route, where James Wan knows how to make a very good... A thriller horror movie, but he kind of loses his touch when it comes to dialogue and how certain characters and perform uh, and, and certain actors or actresses should convey that dialogue. So you get some very hammy performances, uh, like the psychiatrist, for example, where when she's conversing with other people outside of James McAvoy, it doesn't really work. It just sounds corny like she's having to explain way too much and ultimately i kind of think they over explain things a little bit especially uh, at the beginning when it would have been nice as an audience member to unravel james uh, mcavoy's character on our own without as much help but was saying that it's a very good movie and it's very difficult for me not to judge the movie by the last 10 seconds I'm not going to say it, but it's difficult to not judge it because I know that's technically, it's not the end of the movie, but it's definitely the end of the movie. And it just felt so shoehorned in, even though it did make me a little a little excited, it, it was definitely shoehorned in, but it's still good. Despite its faults, 4.25 out of 5, it's just a little hokey and a little too overdone in the in the in the dialogue department. So 4.25 out of 5 split. I think it's safe to say that Shamalanalan has returned in some form or fashion. So maybe we should go ahead and say his last name, how it's actually supposed to be pronounced. Unfortunately Shamalan. <laughs> oh, I was about to say, unfortunately, I have no idea how to say it, but M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, M. Night Shyamalan. M. Night Shyamalan. Shyamalan. M. Night Shyamalan. Shyamalan. So that's going to be something that we all have to remember is how to pronounce his name correctly, <laughs> I guess. But all right. Well, that brings us to the end of the movies, and uh, uh, let's see here. Next week's movies are going to be Life Animated, A Man Called Ove, Tana, Thirteen Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi, and Lion. Yes, told you, big movies. No bonus segment next week, and that does bring us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. 
Alright, well the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitTwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes, favorite us on Stitcher Radio, and of course, look us up on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Anya Taylor-Joy, I get to say this. I can't do something that I would not throw myself under a bus for. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>